Let's read Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, you might want to keep that open because, Courtney, you know darn well that I can't preach a verse. You know I got to deal with the whole book. So, God love you. You're going to get more than you bargained for, but then you probably knew that. (laughs) Paul had never visited Colossae. There's no indication that he'd ever been to this little town in the province of Asia that's about 100 miles east of Ephesus, which was a very important stop in Paul's journey. The Colossian church was an outgrowth of his ministry in Ephesus, and it seems to have been maintained at Philemon's house. So... Basically, it was Pastor Philemon who started the church, or or Paul who started the ministry with Philemon, and he started the church in Colossae, and this is generally considered to be an extension of Paul by way of Philemon. And then a certain fellow named Epaphras served as their go-between. Epaphras went back and forth between the... uh, Two churches and probably some others kind of transferring these letters back and forth. These letters serve to be not scripture in the way that we think of it today, but the, the guidance that comes from our leader. I mentioned a few minutes ago that our bishop would be coming to speak to us in the area. Uh, in the most ideal sense, we would look at that as the same kind of thing as our bishop communicating leadership and vision to the local churches through the clergy that have been appointed by the bishop to serve them. In the same way, Paul worked through Epaphras and Philemon. And basically what Paul wanted to tell them in this letter was, I hear there's a heresy outbreaking in your midst. There are a lot of heresies in the early church that needed to be corrected, and it's important to remember that heresy isn't entirely a bad thing. These are all church terms that we've heard in different times and places. Basically, blasphemy is pretty bad. That's like always wrong. Heresy is oftentimes what corrects the church, but in most cases, the best definition of a heresy is a statement of belief that is outside of the accepted norm. So what we call the norms in church language is doctrine. Doctrine is what the church uses as a way of putting boundaries around the truths that we all hold in in common. So doctrinal truths are things like the divine and human nature of Jesus. Doctrine tells us that that is an absolute belief of a Christian, that Jesus was fully God and fully human. To say that he wasn't would then be considered a heresy. In the same way, the church believes that Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, and therefore he's truly divine in nature because of his divine conception and then birth. 
And so in that sense, it's a doctrinal truth that we all agree to and accept in our way of, of living the Christian life. And so doctrines are the boundaries or the rules. They're, they're like the lines on the road that make us stay on one side of the road or the other so we don't have crashes. And this was what Paul was primarily writing to Colossae about. He was saying, I've heard that there is this blasphemy, blasphemy, I just said that wasn't what it was, a heresy coming out in your area. And, and these heresies are natural if you think about it. We, we may be, I don't want to go here, but I'm going to just suggest that what we were talking about a minute ago about church conferences and decisions that are being made about church doctrine Basically, you have parties on either side that consider the doctrine either correct or incorrect. And the ones who think the doctrine is incorrect are committing a heresy. But does that make them evil, rotten, terrible people? Not necessarily. It just means that they're calling into question a truth that we've all accepted for a long, long time and saying, is this really the truth? And that puts the church in a unique position in that it forces the church and its leaders to say, yeah, we believe it is, and here's why. Or, you know, you might have a point. When they have a point, we call it reformation. And reformations happen in the life of the church. So it's hard to say what exactly to do with a heresy, but the Apostle Paul handles this one masterfully. Because this heresy is most often referred to as Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a belief that Jesus wasn't, in fact, fully human and fully divine, but he was a human with divine gifts. In other words, he was like a demigod. And there were lots of those in that society, lots of Greek demigods and Roman versions of the demigods of Greece. But that meant that they had certain powers, but they had certain limitations, too. And so the doctrinal problem that Gnosticism causes is that it takes away the true, what we say in church speak, salvic nature of Jesus. In other words, we can't, we can't define Jesus as fully capable of saving us if God hasn't made him unique in all of creation. If he's just like other demigods, then how does he fix anything? What's, he, what's his difference? And so this is why Gnosticism was such a troubling heresy in the church, and it still is to this day, because you'll meet many people in your day, I'm sure, who will say, well, I believe Jesus was a great teacher. I believe he was a great example of good, and I believe that he gave us important things to think about. But in all of those ways, you're basically putting them on equal terms with Confucius, with Gandhi, with uh, the Buddha. You know, take your pick. He, he's he's a, another philosopher. Muhammad, you know, he's another philosopher uh, slash theologian or whatever who's given us some interesting ways to view life. And what Paul wants us to understand is, is that, that this heresy has to be exposed and disproved because our salvation depends on it. Our salvation depends on Jesus being the one and only Son of God, the unique individual in all of human existence, in all of created existence, 
Because he is fully the son of God and fully the son of Mary, therefore fully man and fully God. And therefore, as fully human, he bears the weight of our sin in that he was without sin. Which is something no other human has ever been capable of. As fully God, he is equipped and more than able to fight the enemy. Because he is, as God, superior and having absolute authority over all things. And this is what Paul wants us to understand. He wants us to see this heresy for what it is. He wants to instruct the Colossians on truth as it really is. And he wants them to also understand that even though he isn't there with them, he is with them. And he wants to remind them that love is the surest sign of Christ in you. So ultimately, Colossians is a message to us and to those churches in the generations preceding us that it isn't so much about life with Christ as it is life in Christ. And it makes all the difference. Louis Giglio is a well-known pastor out of Atlanta. He describes it this way. He said, have you ever watched one of those, those uh, wrestling matches on TV? You know, the kind we're talking about, the entertaining, staged kind that are, are pretty amazing and entertaining if you're into that sort of thing. And, and you ever seen a tag team match? This is where there are two wrestlers. One stands outside the ropes, one stands inside the ropes. The guys on the inside are wrestling with each other. When they get tired, they got to get to the rope and they got to tap their partner who then jumps in as you jump out and rest and continues the fight. And Louis Giglio says, life with Christ is like that. We fight the fight until we're tired or beyond our means and then we tag Christ and tell him to take over. That's life with Christ not in Christ. And that would certainly fit this heresy that existed in the church in those days because it would suggest that, that uh, Christ, you know, is, is like a superhero, that, that, that we fight the enemy just like they do in all the Marvel movies and DC movies. They, they fight the enemy with the resources they have, the local police, the local military, they fight the enemy, and then when they're beyond their ability, Superman flies in. Or the Avengers come, and they take them on. And then they leave a big mess and get sued, and there's all that stuff, you know, if you've watched those movies, you know what I'm talking about. Thank you, John. I see you out there giggling. And that's what we think, many of us, it's like to be with Christ. That he's going to come in. And here's the thing. When Christ rescues us and then says, okay, I'm still here, but let's see how it goes for you. Then we're not all that different from the cities who want to sue the Avengers for the mess they made. Because then we're mad at Jesus because, you know, he fixed this, but he didn't fix it the way we wanted it fixed. He left us with more challenges and more difficulty. So Paul would like for us to understand that the truth about who Christ is is essential because only the true Christ, the fully divine, fully human being, can be in us as well as with us. A demigod can swoop in at the last minute like Hercules and rescue you from your problem, but only Christ can be in you and you in Christ.
Paul wants you to understand that there is no force on earth that can resist Christ in you. That there is nothing that you can face that won't collapse under the power of Christ in you. It is the same thing we talked about several weeks ago when we were talking about how we deal with life's many difficulties, even grief and death, and understanding that because of Christ we are eternal in our nature, therefore even death doesn't beat us because of Christ in us. Even in our death we are not done because we have Christ in us and we are in Christ now let me just take an aside here to tell you that Paul wants everybody in the church at Colossae, and I think even here, to know that it's personal. He's with us as much as any pastor can be with the congregation, or any bishop can be with the pastors and the other congregational members, in the sense that these, these unique personalities that we take on when we're born again also bring us into the bloodline of God or in the bloodline of Jesus, in other words, Christ in us, so that we are brothers and sisters. There is a familial connection between us because of our Savior. The difference between Christ with us and Christ in us when we look at the Christian family is that it's a Christian community if Christ is not in us, but only with us. If Christ is in you and Christ is in me and we are in Christ, then what it really means is, is that we are together as family in one household, the household of God. Now you may be saying, what do you mean? You keep saying in Christ and, and, and Christ in me. It means that Literally, when we have accepted the gift of God's salvation through Christ and we have asked God to, to give us new life in Christ, we are born again. And, and in a very real sense, there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit where we are no longer the strictly human flesh person that we once were. We are, in fact, spiritual beings in the same sense that Jesus is in God's eyes. He is the only one divine and human. We are acceptable to God through Christ and therefore viewed like adopted children. And so Paul would have you remember that if you were to adopt a child, suppose a, a local child became an orphan and you decided to invite them into your home and to live with you, you would be patient and understanding of their circumstances, but in time you would come to expect them to conform to the house rules, to conform to the moral and, and general character of the family. In time, this child would have to learn to unlearn the old ways and become a member of your family. And you would do this for them out of love, the same love that asked them, asked your heart to let them into your household. And for that sake, you would then teach them slowly and patiently to conform to the family norms. 
In the same way as we become followers of Christ who live in Christ and Christ in us are challenged to become part of the family, to become like Christ in the eyes of God, not only in the grace of God, but in the image of Christ. And so we look to our Lord Jesus as the example and guide for how our lives should be lived in order to honor the Father who has adopted us into his household. We were orphans. We didn't know it, of course, but then when the truth came, we were awakened. This sanctifying grace of God took over our lives and started changing the way we look at the world and we became awakened to the fact that we are now God's children through Christ and therefore as members of God's household we are we are obliged at first with patient long-suffering love from our Heavenly Father but we are nonetheless obliged to obey and conform to the house rules of our heavenly home this is what it means to be in Christ and to have Christ in us. And of course, Jesus doesn't let it go there, because upon his departure back to the Father's throne room, where this divinely, entirely human man now sits on the throne of God, wrap your mind around that for a second. He is fully human and fully God, and this fully human being ascends to heaven where he now sits on the throne of God, a human sits on the throne of God. And from that moment sends us the Holy Spirit, which is in effect this spiritual transfusion, where we find that our old nature is replaced by the Holy Spirit and the blood of Christ, so to speak. Jesus said that you can be born once of a woman and then you can be born again of the Spirit. And this is what he means. That your flesh, as it became known to your parents and then to you, is one kind of existence. But when you are born again into Christ, you become a new creation in Christ, literally transformed. And this kind of transforming change leaves you unable to pick and choose when you are with Christ and Christ is with you. It forces you to accept that you are always with and in Christ and Christ is always with and in you. And why do we push back from this doctrinal truth? Well, I think it's a systemic problem in our hearts that has to change over time. Because the reality is, is that we like it when Christ is there in the crisis, but we don't particularly care for him being there for everything. Especially the things we kind of wish he isn't watching. That he isn't part of us, even our nature. And so we resist conformity to Christ in that sense because we'd rather not have him tell us what to do all the time. We'd rather not have him informing our conscience all the time. Truth is, is when you're talking to your unchurched and non-Christian friends about your relationship with Christ, they will assume that you are talking about conforming to a certain moral code that you're not sure you want, or that they're not sure they want, I mean. 
And that means that we are in so many ways a church body that's supposed to represent Christ's grace and love, but to most of the people in our world, we seem to be more about telling people what's wrong with themselves and what they're doing wrong in life. And this is because we all have this innate nature to resist conformity when it also includes being changed in ways we don't really want to change. The church's earliest confession of faith was a simple phrase, Jesus is Lord. And it's still the abiding, authentic identifier of a Christian to this day. But I want to ask you something. When you, when you confess Jesus is Lord, do you understand what you're saying? My Lord, my leader, my boss, the one who tells me what is right and wrong and what I should and should not do, the one who is with me but in me all the time, at the lowest points of my moral character, at the highest points of my integrity. He is with me when I am wrong. He is with me when I am right. He is with me and in me when I am lost and troubled. He is with me and in me when I am on a high mountain worshiping in the light of God. He's with me and in me in all of it because he is my Lord. He's my boss. He's my leader. So, Courtney, your verse. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him and him in you. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let us pray. God, thank you for your word. Now burn it on our hearts so that we might be changed forever. And Lord, help us to have the courage to be in you and let you be in us at all times and at all places so that together we can thankfully and joyfully profess Jesus is Lord. Amen.